pray with me. Faithful Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for the privilege of being able to gather, to sit under your word with the eager expectation that you will speak to us, that you will transform us, that you will even use your word in us this very morning to make us more like you. Lord Jesus, would you grant me the words to preach the way I know I ought to preach, to clearly hold you up to be honored? Would you make us into a people that delight to pray and obey so that you get all the glory? We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. I always say that my heart is with the persecuted brothers and sisters. I'm ready to go anywhere the Lord leads me because whenever he opens the door, no one can close it. That comes from Brother Peter Jasek. If you uh, happen to join us for that Imprisoned for Christ uh, video event last week, you may have heard his testimony. Back in October of 2015, he was working with an organization called Voice of the Martyrs. He went around the world helping persecuted Christians stand the test of their faith. When they were asked to suffer for Jesus, being imprisoned or, or harmed in some way, he was the helping hands of our Lord to come alongside. What he didn't expect was what happened in October of 2015. On his way to the airport, thinking he was off to the next group of believers in need of encouragement, instead, he found himself as the one in need of encouragement. He was thrown into a Sudanese prison. Things quickly went from bad to worse. He was mistreated. He wasn't given anything like due process. And little by little, his body started to deteriorate. He said, within three months, I lost 25 kilograms of body weight. He had uh, internal bleeding, among other issues. To make matters worse, he was crammed into a jail cell with about a dozen men that openly affiliated with ISIS. This was a place where faith was in the midst of affliction. What, how can someone endure that? Well, as we've been studying in the book of 2 Thessalonians, it's not impossible for the Christian faith to flourish under affliction. In fact, with the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus behind us, you can and you will obey your Lord Jesus even in the midst of persecution. Pastor Peter Jessek found that to be true, and the Thessalonian church 2,000 years ago found that to be true. Remember, this was a church that had been born in affliction. The Apostle Paul had planted them and had to be run out of town quickly because of the persecution that was stirred up. They were believers familiar with what it meant to pay a price for their faith in Jesus. And as we look at the example of what Paul teaches them, we'll see a lesson applicable for us, even as we leave, live in comparative peace. Something that's true for every Christian as they seek to live the Christian life. It's this. That because Jesus is faithful, we pray and we obey to honor him. That Jesus is faithful, so we pray and we obey to honor him. 
Well, see, that's true, yes, in the midst of a great trial of affliction, and it's true living in relative peace in Castleton, Indianapolis, in the day and place we live. We'll see that in two points as we move through the passage. First, in verses 1 through 2, we pray because not everyone has faith. We pray because not everyone has faith. And then in verses 3 through 5, we obey because Jesus is faithful. We obey because Jesus is faithful. Let's begin in that first section. We pray because not everyone has faith. Verse 1 begins with a transition. Uh, Dr. D.A. Carson says that the, up, up until now, Paul has been telling the Thessalonians what's coming. Now he tells them what to do in the meantime. Verse 1, finally, brothers, there's the transition. And then Paul enlists help for his missionary preaching. He instructs them, pray for us. Remember, the apostle Paul had a burden to preach Christ where Christ had not been preached. To be a frontier missionary going and telling people about the Jesus that he knew and served. And Paul, like all good missionaries, understands that ministry is only sustainable and possible with the support of prayer. So he tells the Thessalonians, he asks them to pray. Well, what does he ask specifically to pray for? Well, not that he would be wealthy and healthy. He prays, asks them to pray for two things. First, to pray for victory in his preaching. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. The word of the Lord is... The, back to the Old Testament, a, a common concept, when, when God speaks, we are to listen. God accomplishes his will through his word. Uh, here, the word of the Lord is referring to the, the word of our Lord Jesus. That is the message that Jesus entrusted Paul with. It carries the authority of Jesus. It's how people become to know him as the Lord of their life and bend their knee to him. And, and Paul tells them to pray that that word would compete and win. That, that next phrase there, the Lord, where the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, those are athletic images. Thessalonica, they would have been very familiar with the Greek games that were common in that day. Uh, my daughter Lillian in her homeschooling is learning a bit about ancient Greece and that we've been sitting on the couch reading a book called you wouldn't want to be an ancient Greek athlete. It's, one, it's a very tongue-in-cheek, cartoon-type uh, artistry, you know, but explaining what the games were like back in those days. Uh, there was a, a great heritage of athletes competing in sports, like running and wrestling, things like that. But they were not the sort of games that many of us would like to participate in. Uh, they were missing a lot of the things that modern athletes assume. There were no trainers, no doctors, there was no pay. And even personally, I think the most icky, there was no clothes. They would compete in the nude. Why would people endure all the dangers of getting, potentially getting injured, all the training that they had to do on their own, all for no pay, and even to be out there like that? Well, it is for the prospect of the victory circle. It is for the honor of being declared the winner. 
the athletes would compete and the winner would be given a wreath. Everyone would look at them with admiration. They would bring honor to their family and their city and they themselves would grow in stature. The words Paul uses carry these sort of games in mind. He pictures the message of Jesus running a competitive race. You could say it's the message of Jesus racing against the other competing messages of the day. And what Paul wants them to pray for is that the message of Jesus would win. That Jesus would end up in the victory circle of people's hearts. That the gospel would change people from the inside out. Now, if you're looking for an example of what that's like, he tells them, it's as happened among you. The Thessalonians were living proof that this happens, that the word of the Lord speeds forth and wins and people honor Jesus in their hearts. Remember, they, they went from worshiping idols to worshiping the one made as in the perfect image of his father, the Lord Jesus himself. This sort of victory in the hearts of unbelievers has been happening for 2,000 years and it's still happening today. Uh, I, I loved the testimony that we had in our congregational meeting packet a few weeks back for the brother named Ryu, who Lord willing is gonna be here with his family in July. Uh, he's gonna be our first global pastoral resident. Very much looking forward to uh, having someone from John Foltz's ministry come to be a part of our church and to receive seminary training at Indianapolis Theological Seminary. Uh, I hope you read his testimony. It is an example of Christ being honored in someone's heart after the gospel wins the competition against other religions. He, he moved from being a Buddhist to a brother in Christ because someone shared the gospel with him in Thailand. That is the exact sort of thing that Paul is asking the Thessalonians to pray for. To pray that the gospel would speed ahead, that the door would be open, and that people would honor Jesus through his preaching. There's a second thing he tells them to pray for. To pray for protection in his preaching. That's what you see in verse 2. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Now, the Apostle Paul is no wimp. He's not afraid to suffer. In other passages in his letters, he uh, almost as a badge of honor describes the beatings and the lashings and the imprisonments and the cold and the absence of food and comfort that he endures for Christ. He, the Apostle Paul is no wimp. So why is he asking them to pray for his protection, that, that they be delivered from wicked and evil men? Well, there's a, a reason here. It's because opposition to the gospel, while it's unpleasant, it actively hinders people hearing the message of Jesus. When Paul's in chains, he has less freedom to preach the gospel. He'll preach to the people in jail with him, but ultimately he wants to be able to preach to everyone without restriction. So Paul here, here tells them to pray. Pray that those that are acting on the orders of the devil, whether they realize it or not, that they would be thwarted in their attempts to keep him from preaching Christ with power. He, he absolutizes it there at the end, for not all have faith. 
Now, most specifically, he's clearly talking about those who are opposing him, probably in Corinth as he's trying to preach the gospel. And yet there's a universal principle here. There is a need for us to pray for the gospel to advance, to to win at the end of the day. There's also a need for us to pray that the, uh, the opponents of the gospel would be cleared out of the way. And the need for that prayer does not end until there are no more unbelievers on the earth. We pray so that our missionaries would feel the strength of the Lord behind them as they do the work of sharing the gospel. We pray so that the devices of the enemy and those that would seek to stop Christ from being honored, that they would be frustrated in their attempts. We pray and we keep praying with the confidence that Jesus has already told us he honors this sort of prayer. Do you remember back in John 14? Jesus made a a promise about prayer that Christians sometimes struggle to know what to do with. John 14, 13 through 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We struggle to know what to do with that. I can ask you anything, Jesus, really? But remember, it's in his name. That's in his authority. That is in line with what Jesus wants most in this world, like people bowing their knee to Jesus, coming to honor them in their hearts. So brothers and sisters, we need to be the sort of church that gets on our knees and prays for the gospel to advance. We need to pray and keep praying because not everyone has faith. Not everybody's a Christian. And as long as that's the case, we have work to do. One of the ways that you can keep yourself going in this is to remember that there is great power in your prayers, that God loves to use the prayers of his people to accomplish his will in the world. Pastor Peter Jasek had a testimony of just that. There would be a season of fruitful ministry for him in his 445 days of imprisonment. It didn't look like that would be the case early on. Frankly, he was just hanging on by a thread. He was so physically unwell that he wasn't sure how he was going to survive his imprisonment. But he said that the strangest thing started happening. While he was in the prison cell with those men from ISIS, they were tormenting him and doing their best to make his life miserable. And yet, every night, at 9 o'clock, he was able to curl up on the cement floor with no bed and no covering, and he was able to sleep like a baby. He didn't understand why that was the case. He was uncomfortable all of his waking hours. Why would he sleep well, of all things? Well, one day he got a letter that explained it. It turned out that his church had gotten word of his imprisonment, and they had been faithful in their calling. They had rallied around to pray for Brother Peter in his imprisonment, and they specifically decided as a church that they would pray precisely at 9 p.m. for him. He was able to connect the dots. The Lord was using the prayers of his people to sustain him. And as we'll hear about at the end of the sermon, 
to bring about that great power in his preaching for the season of harvest to come. Brothers and sisters, the same Jesus hears your prayers when you lift up our missions partners before the throne of grace. The same power is possible through your prayers to advance the gospel around the world. I hope you feel not just a, a passing partnership with the families that we call our global missions partners. Uh, we, we have these cards that are designed to help you to remember them and to pray for them. The Humphreys family, the Foltz family, good news for India. If you haven't already picked one up, you can do so, the, the next steps area. Uh, we try to update these cards so that they have current prayer requests from those families so you can know what obstacles are in the way of the gospel advancing? How can I lift these brothers and sisters up in prayer? Well, one easy thing you can do is just take these, put them on your fridge, and every time you see one, just take a moment and pray that the Lord would do what he's promised to do here, that to use his word to help people to honor Jesus through their ministry. Cards are one way you can do that. Another way is uh, a prayer meeting. It happens once a month. It's called Barnabas Prayer Groups. It's the fourth Sunday, fourth Sunday of every month, 7.30 a.m. Terry and Dawn Seitz lead it. Uh, I'm told they even have a Zoom option. So if uh, you're not able to gather in person, you can join in in praying for our missions partners. And sometimes we even have those partners join the call to hear us pray for them. I hope you feel connected to our missions partners. We don't want to be the sort of church that just drops pennies on people's lives. We want to support them financially, and we do. We try to do that generously. But we also want to be faithful partners to pray. Because, brothers and sisters, not everyone has faith. But our Lord Jesus is faithful. And he uses the prayers of his people to bring people to honor him. Well, it's important for us to learn that we need to pray. Pray for the gospel to go forth, for Jesus and the message about him to win the day. It's also important, though, for us to reckon with what obligations we ourselves have in the way we live. You might say, how do we honor Jesus in our lives? That's the second point. We obey because Jesus is faithful. In verses 3 through 5, we obey because Jesus is faithful. Verse 3 begins, but the Lord is faithful. The faithfulness of Jesus is the grounds of our obedience. Let's realize that anytime there's a passage that talks about obedience, there's a challenge that we gospel-believing evangelical Christians who believe in salvation by faith alone have to deal with. Uh, Maybe you've had this thought. I I see a passage that talks about obedience, and I get a little bit nervous, maybe even a little itchy. Salvation is by faith alone. I don't want to be a legalist. How am I going to deal with a passage that says, I need to obey Jesus? And look at verse 4. I mean, it's pretty blatant. And we have this confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. It's a bit like my dad talking to my brother and I when we were growing up saying, boys, thank you for cleaning up your room. 
That did not mean our room had already been cleaned up. He was expecting us to go and act. It was, it's both a command and a commendation all in one. So how do you keep your heart from just saying, okay, I need to obey harder? Well, you remember the grounds of grace that allow you to obey. There's a word play there at the beginning of verse 3 and from the end of verse 2. At the end of verse 2, for not all have faith. Verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. The idea is uh, as unfaithful as even opponents of the gospel are, well, well, Jesus, well, he's even more faithful than they are unfaithful. By way of contrast, Paul draws our attention to the fact that Jesus is utterly reliable in all that he does. The faithfulness of the Lord is another one of those very rich veins running through your Old Testament. Uh, we could spend a whole sermon on it easily. I'll just draw your attention to one passage, Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. As an aside, it is fascinating to see in this passage how many things that in the Old Testament are applied to the Lord or to God generally here are applied specifically to Jesus. Jesus is the promise keeper. Just as in the Old Testament, the, the Lord was faithful to his promises, to his covenant people, so Jesus is utterly reliable for Christians in the new covenant Jesus will show himself to be the one we can rely on. How? Well, that's where he shows us next. By his power and his protection, he, he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. That phrase, establish you, has the idea of strengthen, to, to like strengthen someone's resolve. You, you might say, Jesus will give you the backbone to live out obedience, even when it's going to cost you something. And, and match with that, he's going to protect you. He's going to be your bodyguard, your personal bodyguard, watching over you so that the evil one can't overpower you. Well, the last verse, remember we were talking about evil men? Now he's speaking about the one behind those evil men, the, the devil himself, Satan. Is there anyone that can rattle a Christian? If you know that the great enemy of God himself, the enemy, is being held in check by Jesus for you personally. Jesus is faithful, and that means we have every reason to be confident and to find comfort. We should not let fear overwhelm our hearts or allow us to sit back trembling into inaction. I love that song we sang before the sermon, Jesus, Strong and Kind. It captures this aspect of our Lord so beautifully. Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. No one else can be my shield. I should come to him. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus, Jesus strong and kind. 
You see, brothers and sisters, you have what you need in our Lord Jesus. All, all the power you need to live a Christian life, all the protection you need to stand up against the schemes of the devil. You have everything you need in your utterly reliable Savior, even when your own heart feels too weak to muster up obedience. Look what we see in verse 5. Jesus even directs your heart to his. Verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. When we feel our heart has grown cold, when we feel like our spiritual strength has been sapped, when frankly our spiritual eyes have been everywhere except where they should be, at those moments we can pray that Jesus would, would redirect our hearts to where they should be. That he remind us of God's love for us, shown in the cross of Christ, where the sinless Son of God gave his life up for sinners like you and me. We, we can look back to his steadfastness, how in the midst of affliction and pain and difficulty, he found the grace of God to be sufficient, and he endured faithfully to the end. We can have our hearts refilled with his joy and his power, not by anything we do, but by his grace to us. So brothers and sisters, don't be afraid of the word to obey. To obey is the natural outflow of a heart that trusts Jesus in this way. To obey is what happens when someone has honored Jesus in the winner's circle of their heart and then follows him wherever he leads them. To obey is not to win God's affection. It is to enjoy his infection in the way that we live our lives for him. You can and you will do this. Not because you're great, but because Jesus is faithful. So brothers and sisters, uh, I have to ask, are you seeing the fruitfulness of an obedient life from your faithful Savior? Do you find any measure of delight when you find yourself obeying his commands? Whether that's giving generously of the money he's provided you with or serving someone in something that maybe you don't enjoy but you know is for their good. Do you find any help when you read your Bible in your own devotional time? Do you find any spark in your heart as you obey that command to all of us to share the gospel with someone who has not yet honored Jesus in their hearts? Do you see any evidence of the Lord's grace in your life? If so, brothers and sisters, take heart. Your Lord Jesus is faithful. Even if this last year has been really hard for you spiritually, or maybe even this last week has been one filled with failure, the Lord Jesus can redirect your hearts to him. And he can produce within you the thing that you are called to. Yes, even obedience. A life that honors him in the way you live it. One way that I want to challenge each of us to consider our own obedience to the Lord Jesus is in the way we participate in the Great Commission ourselves. You know, Easter's right around the corner. So many of our neighbors and family members and friends have had a hard year just like us. Now is a great time to reach out winsomely and joyfully and say, would you like to come to church with me? We, we actually have these Easter cards that you can uh, write in the seat back in front of you. 
You can pick one out. Uh, if you want more, we're glad to get them, get them to you. They have all the surface info on them. We would love an opportunity for them to hear the word of the Lord, the message of Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, that the Lord will give us the joy of seeing some people honor him in the victory circle of their hearts. Let me challenge you to consider at least one person that you can give one of these invite cards to. And let's see what the Lord does as we pray together for a harvest of souls. Now, if you're listening to this sermon and you're not a Christian, I have to ask you, uh, is there anyone in your life that you trust completely? We live in an age that many people say is an age of mistrust. There's so little trust for politicians and institutions and people with any sort of authority. Maybe you've even had family members and friends let you down. Maybe it's not because anyone's trying to be malicious to you. People have just failed to live up to what you have needed. I wonder, friend, might God have left that desire for a faithful person in your life unfulfilled so that you might meet the only truly faithful person that ever lived, the Lord Jesus himself. See, we Christians believe that Jesus is completely trustworthy and that he's already proved it. We believe he did that by going to a Roman cross and willingly giving up his life so that he could exchange his life for all those who believe in him. We believe that Jesus paid the full penalty for sins that we deserve to experience because we've each lived life on our own terms. We believe that Jesus didn't shrink back from any of that suffering and even death that the cross entailed, that he did it all and he did it with joy. We believe that every word that he says comes true. So when he promises that you can be right with God, that you can live forever with him in heaven, that he can be utterly trusted in every one of his words. So if you're hearing this message this morning and you're not a Christian, I have to ask you, will you find anyone you can trust like Jesus? I'll save you the work. The answer is no. Honor him in your heart today. Trust him to save you like no one else can. And you can have the joy that we have been discussing today. You can have all the confidence as you live in a world filled with so many question marks. Because you know the only one who is a sure thing, Jesus himself. Well, brothers and sisters, I hope you're glad that we serve a faithful Savior. I hope that doesn't keep you from wanting to live boldly and faithfully. I hope that doesn't keep you from getting to your knees. I hope it motivates you to do those exact things. Because Jesus is faithful, we pray and we obey to honor him. I hope you want to live that out. When you do, there is such joy in store for you. Pastor Peter Jasek endured quite a bit in that prison cell with those men from ISIS. He ended up getting transferred from 
several different prisons till he finally landed in one where he had a measure more of freedom. It was a, a difficult time to get there. Again, he endured much suffering. And yet by this point, that good sleep he had been getting, along with a few other mercies from the Lord, had resulted in him having enough strength that he was ready to reap the harvest. He and two other pastors that were imprisoned in this facility had access to a religious building, a chapel. And they had freedom to share the gospel with other prisoners. They made the most of it. And by the prayers of God's people and the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus, they saw Christ honored in the hearts of many. He said, these six months were absolutely the best six months of my prison time. I was full of joy, and I also started to recover physically as well. So these six months were actually the best six months of my life, period. I've never experienced so many people responding to the gospel that I preached. I was not like a traveling preacher who goes from town to town and preaches and leaves people to themselves. We were living with these people so we could see how their lives were transformed, their reconciliation with God by the blood of Jesus. During those months, they saw the chapel go from having 20 believers in it to having over 200. Isn't it incredible what the Lord will do with the prayers of his people? Isn't it incredible what obedience to Jesus by his grace can result in? Brothers and sisters, that's the life you're called to lead. Jesus is faithful. So pray and obey, and you will honor him. Let's pray.